right, so we're going to spend some time now studying the Bible. We study the Bible every week because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We're in Proverbs, so if you have a Bible, open it up to Proverbs. It's kind of the middle of your Bible. If you're grabbing one of those black Bibles, we should be around page 529. In this book of Proverbs, we've subtitled the series Scandalous Wisdom. And the idea is, is if we listen to God's voice of wisdom, if we follow what God says to do, if we walk with Jesus, that's going to be scandalous to the world. We're going to look odd. We're going to look strange. Now, Scripture is clear that we're also going to be grace givers to others. We're going to have uh, joy and peace and kindness and love to give to others, even as they might look at us and say, you're a freak, right? And so faithfulness to Jesus can be a combination of both being looked down upon, but also having much to give to others and serving others in love. And so this scandalous wisdom is listening to God, following his voice, trusting that he is good and that he loves us. We see this again and again in Proverbs. This week, Proverbs chapter 5, we're going to be talking about sex. Proverbs chapter 5, sex is powerful. That's the big idea here in Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, It's a difficult topic, and just so you know, if you're new to our church, we don't talk about sex every week. It's not a normal thing, okay? What we do is we teach the Bible, and then when the Bible brings it up, we have to deal with it, right? So sometimes this is called expository Bible teaching or expositional Bible teaching, where you just kind of expose the text verse after verse, chapter after chapter. And so what happens there is that it tethers us to God's Word. So we are forced to deal with difficult topics even when we don't want to. So I just want to admit Man, this is not my comfort zone. This is weird for me too, just like it might be for you. I also want to recognize that we come from different backgrounds, right? For some people, you might be kind of numbed to the subject because our culture is just completely oversexed and it might just be no big deal to you at all, right? And then on the other side, there might be some that are like, I'd just rather never talk about this. And so we recognize that scripture has a balance in between there, that there is something private and dignified and close and intimate about sex where it shouldn't be no big deal. It should be a special, carefully handled private thing, biblically, but it also shouldn't be ignored. It should be something we talk about because scripture talks about it. So we want to deal with it as scripture deals with it. So the big idea here in chapter five is that sex is powerful. And the analogy I want to use is rain. Um, Throughout the Bible, there are a lot of analogies of things that are good gifts from God that we receive and we need it but they're also dangerous when they are out of their boundaries. Sex is that way. Fire is that way. Food and drink can be that way. And so I just want to talk about rain because this text, chapter 5, uses the imagery of a fountain and of a well and of water that feeds us. And it uses that imagery to talk about this natural desire or thirst that we feel sexually. And so think about where we're living right now. We're in a terrible drought terrible drought. And Jonathan mentioned this, we're praying for rain. There are wildfires, it's, it's hurting the land, it's hurting the animals, it's hurting us. We want rain. We need rain to give us life, and we're praying for rain. Yet in St. Louis, my, my family used to live in St. Louis years ago. Just a week and a half ago, they got like a whole year's worth of rain in one day, and it was out of control. It was dangerous. It was too much power the great Mississippi River that normally feeds the crops and brings life to this fertile valley through the middle of our country, while those boundaries were overflowed and flooding killed people. There were two men last week that were in their cars and they just got flooded and couldn't get out of their cars with the water rushing over them and they died. And so that's an image of how we need rain. It's a good gift from God and yet it can overpower us when it 
when it goes beyond its boundaries. Sex is the same way. It's this good gift from God. It's a blessing. It's something we shouldn't be afraid of or scared of, and yet we also have to handle it with care. We need to listen to God because we don't really know how to handle it on our own. We need God's guidance. And that's what we'll see in Proverbs chapter 5. So let's read Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. Then you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is an admonition to recognize with carefulness, with caution, that sex indeed is powerful. Scripture, again, affirms that it's a good gift from God, but it also affirms that we need to listen to God and obey his voice to to know how to handle this incredibly powerful gift. I want to recognize that I know some of you bring in today some unique hurts, pains, and worries about this topic. And so I just want to honor you and say, uh, I'm sorry for your own hurt in this area, and we're going to pray that God would meet you today as we look at his word. Um, We also recognize that many of us are confused on this topic, and we have a lot of different opinions. We also recognize that many of us walk in here today not believing that this word is authoritative. We welcome you here. We want to reason with you that what Jesus has to say is worth listening to, but we we honor you. We're glad that you would be our guest and listen to what God's word has to say. So I'm going to pray that God would meet us here, that he'd help us in the awkwardness of this, that he would be with us so that we would see more of him, and that among all the other distractions and weirdnesses of this topic, that we would see more of his goodness for us. Let me pray. God, we pray that you would show your kindness to us. Um, We are convinced of your love as we look at what you've done for us in Jesus. You came and lived the life that we couldn't live. You always said the right thing. You always did the right thing. You were always brave. You always knew who you were sent from the Father. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that you took our sin upon yourself. We thank you that you rose from the dead, proving that you've conquered sin and death once and for all. And as we see that picture, we're reminded of your heart. We're reminded of your kindness. So we pray that your spirit would reinforce that reality, that you would meet with us, that this would be a supernatural engagement. Your spirit would change us, would comfort us, and would help us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, so difficult topic, weird topic, so I'm just going to kind of try to blast through it, okay? Praying that God would comfort us and help us through the weirdness of this topic, but just try to be as clear as possible about what the text says, what the Bible says. Here in Proverbs 5, it gives us three big ideas. Number one, sex can easily deceive us. Sex can easily deceive us. We'll see that in the first few verses. Uh, Number two, sex hurts us when it's out of bounds. It can hurt us. We can think it's no big deal and it won't hurt us, but it will actually hurt us when it's out of bounds in 7 through 14. And then finally, number three, we'll see that sex should be a good gift to marriage. That's its design. It should be a good gift within marriage. We'll see that in the final verses, verses 15 to 23. So number one, sex can easily deceive us. Sex can easily deceive us. We see this in verses one through six. Read again, my son, this is the same kind of language he said throughout the first four chapters. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Now, this is a repeated thing that he keeps hammering. And the idea is that we would posture ourselves before God. We are humble when we come before God and say, God, I don't know how to live this life, but you do. You are God. You have created me. And so that's the life of faith. The life of faith is one that says, I don't know all the right answers, but I know God does. So I'm going to humble myself before him and ask him to teach me. That's what we are called to do again and again in Proverbs. Now he gets into the specific situation of sex here. Verse three, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. What is he saying? This is a metaphor. Okay, this is poetic. This doesn't mean that that everyone that's outside of the boundaries literally has honey falling off their face, right? It's talking about how there's a sweetness. There's an enticing, oh, this looks good. This is going to be wonderful. That's what sex outside of the bounds is like. It can deceive us. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. It's smooth. It's desirable. It looks good. It feels good. And so we've talked about this a lot in different ways throughout the years. Sexual immorality and many other sins, when you commit a sin, when you disobey your parents or disobey God, sometimes there's no immediate negative result. Sometimes it just feels good. And you just think, oh, well, that was good. Well, they were lying to me. I heard it was bad, but my experience is that it's good. And so what the Bible is saying is, well, that's deceptive. In the short term, something can feel good, but long term be poisonous. It can hurt you in the long term. It goes on to say this honey and smooth oil of speech and attractiveness. Verse four, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. It's not the beginning, y'all. It's the end. Do you see the difference there? In the beginning, it's honey and sweetness. In the end, it's poison, wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word for the grave or hell. It wasn't quite as specific as how we understand hell, but basically, you know, the end, the grave, death and destruction. Verse six, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. She doesn't even realize that she's killing you, but she is killing you indeed. It's a long, slow poison. I want to clarify another word here, and that's the word forbidden woman. Uh, As we've talked about throughout Proverbs, uh, the woman is this overriding kind of image throughout Scripture. There's the faithful woman and the unfaithful woman. There's the woman of wisdom. There's the woman of folly, right? So this is kind of a metaphor. 
Uh, it's also men that can entice you to sexual sin, just like it's women. Okay, So this is not a man-woman thing in that sense. This is just a book that's primarily written to men, and so it's using the image of, well, there's a good woman you could be attracted to and a bad woman you could be attracted to, right? There's two different directions here. So it's a, a metaphor, a symbol of faithfulness. So the symbol here is that this desire for sexual immorality can trick you. It looks great, but in the end it's bad. And the word forbidden woman and also the word adulteress are two different Hebrew words that sometimes in ancient translations are translated as foreign, foreign women. Anybody read older translations? Do you see that? The idea here is not a ethnic difference. It's those that are outside the community of faith. So that's why modern translations don't use foreign anymore because it confuses people and it makes it sound like, oh, anybody that's not genetically an Israelite is bad. That's not what it means, right? In the Old Testament, similar to the New Testament, anybody could join the people of God by faith. Now in the Old Testament, it was more of a nation state. It was more of a genetic tribe, right, that reproduced physically and had children, right? So it was more of a nation state, but people could always convert and join the people of Israel. So that's even bigger and more blown up in the New Testament. The New Testament, the people of God, the church is a multi-ethnic, multi-tongue, multi-nation tribe of people from, from everywhere, right? It's by faith that we join the people of God. And so tracking that back to the forbidden woman, the forbidden woman is the woman who says, I don't care what God has to say. I'm an outsider to the community. That's who this woman is. That's who this person is. It's saying, don't engage with a person that doesn't care about God's standards. That's the call here. That's the advice. And it can be deceptive. It can be deceptive because it starts off sweet. It looks good. It feels good. It's easy. It's the easiest thing in the world to engage in sexual immorality. But he's saying in the end, it's bitterness and death, and it will hurt you. Starts off easy, starts out fun, but it hurts us in the long run. I like to use the term of a slow poison. I grabbed a picture here of the lychee fruit. Anybody ever tried lychee fruit before? It be pretty good. It's kind of a mild fruit. It's interesting. Uh, it has kind of like a crackly hard shell Looks a bit like a strawberry, kind of red and bumpy. Um, and then you kind of crack off that shell on the inside. It's got a, a white inside that's soft and sweet. It can be very good. But the interesting thing about the lychee fruit, I've had it before, it's quite good, is it has a little trace amount of poison in it. <laughs> little trace amount, right? You could eat several and probably be fine. But there was this issue in India where there were a bunch of street children that had found a grove where there was lots of lychee fruit. And these kids were starving, and so that's all they had to eat. And they were only eating the lychee fruit, and they were malnourished, and it was killing them because it was too much for their little bodies to handle. What normally for you and me who, who eat well and might have a few lychee fruit, and it's no big deal, a little bit of poison, no big deal, we're fine. For them, it killed them. And so I use that illustration as a thing to understand, again, that like sexual immorality, you engage in sexual immorality and you're like, hey, Dave, I'm fine. That was fun. I think I'm going to go back for more. What I want you to understand is it's going to build up more and more in your system and it's going to destroy you. That's, that's the biblical image, that it, that it tears at our soul. 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Corinthians 5 are strong cross-references for this. We preached through this uh, last year in 1 Corinthians, so I encourage you to go check out those podcasts, the sermons that are online. Um, but there's this picture that Paul gives us that when we sin sexually, we're sinning against our body. And our body goes beyond just our physical flesh. It's our personhood. There's a sense in which it's connected to 
our personhood and it hurts us. So we face the fact here that we can be deceived. What are the deceptions that are currently being pushed on us in our society? How can we apply this? If, if sexuality is something that can deceive us, what are some of the deceptions? I think it's really important to name in our culture the primary deception where this is working right now. The foundational one is our identity is based on self and desires. I think that's the foundational deception that everything else flows out of. And so what we do is instead of looking to God or looking to nature, we look inward and we look at self. And that is the false gospel that's being preached at us day after day. You're being told, you're being told, you're being told that salvation is found by looking within yourself. And the Bible says no. When you look inside yourself, you find more selfishness. You need to look to God for salvation and he can tell you how to live. And that's why there's, there's such a, a difference between what we would believe in the church and what the secular world believes because the secular world says, well, you define yourself by yourself. Therefore, anything that yourself says is good is good. And that's the foundational deception. God says, no, actually, he knows better than you and I do how to run our life. And so we need to look to him for that guidance. And so that's the foundational deception that we look inside for our own identity. Now, I want to be clear. There are unique ways that you're made and I'm made. There are just uniquenesses about us which God can bless and God can use, right? We all have different personalities, different skin tones, different likes and different dislikes. I'm not saying none of that matters. I'm saying we start with the identity that God gives us. God says, I've made you in my image and you have a purpose. And he says, I've saved you from your sins by sending Jesus down the cross for you. And that gives us our foundational identity. And everything else is secondary from there. And once we get our foundational primary identity from God, then we can live in our own unique quirkiness as we are and say, okay, God is... Is this okay or not okay? You tell me. You're in charge. And he's like, hey, this is neutral, but this is a problem. You need to stop that, but this is fine, right? And, and we sort that out of our life, kind of understanding what unique things about us are just how God wired us, and that's good, and then what unique things about us are actually leading us into trouble, and we have to stop and say no to. And we all have a mix of those in our life, unique blessings and unique sin tendencies. All of us are sinners, We all veer off the path and we need Jesus to define us, to save us and to free us from our sin. So what are the secondary deceptions then that flow out of that looking into self? Well, the secondary deceptions in the area of sex are then anything you desire is good because you desire it, right? And you're in charge and your identity comes from yourself. So therefore, if you like it, it's got to be good. And so we've got things like sex outside of marriage. That's a confusing one for a lot of church people, I think because of so many other issues of sexual immorality, a lot of people think, well, that's fine. That's kind of like normal, traditional sexual immorality. So it's okay, right? No. Sex outside of marriage with your girlfriend or boyfriend is is not okay. Biblically, again, we're not here to heap shame on anybody. We all come in this door as sinners. We all bring stuff into the room and God says, I need you to stop that. I forgive you for your sins and I want you to sin no more. So we all bring that stuff in, but that's one of the deceptions. Well, it seems easy and simple, so it can't be bad, right? And God says, no, that's a problem. Sex outside of marriage. Pornography is one of the most common problems we see in the church. Pornography is not okay. Again, it's a form of sexuality outside of the boundaries that God has set of marriage, and it hurts you, and it also hurts the people that you're enslaving in that industry. Are you, are you pro-slavery? Then continue with pornography. If you're anti-slavery, you need to stop with the pornography. Homosexual practice, fantasies, 
um, transgender identity. These are all forms of sexuality where we're moving outside the boundaries. And again, our culture says they're all just fine because you want it. And if you want it, everything's okay. God says, no, some of the things we want are bad. Some of the things we want are going to hurt us. And I just, I want to be very clear as a, as a grandfather with three kids, being married for 29 years, I think it's easy for people to think, I've never struggled sexually, right? I've never decide, desired anything outside of God's boundaries. I'm going to be very clear, all Christians, all human beings desire things that are outside of God's will. And we can either rail our fist at God and say, how dare you, I'm going to follow my own desires. Or we can humbly say, God, help, help me to obey you. We all struggle. And so if you struggle with particular things, hear me. We will show empathy and sympathy to you, and we want to walk with you through those struggles. But also, please hear that all people struggle. Please don't elevate your struggle as unique and then start saying, oh, other people don't understand. I can't obey Jesus because my struggles are unique. No, we, we all struggle. And so we want to together stumble forward and obey Jesus together. We go back to the gospel. Jesus loves me so I can trust him. That's the message. It's not, I'm going to trust him and do what's right, and then he'll be forced to bless me. No, it's like, I did what was wrong, and Jesus loved me anyway. And because he loves me and forgives me, now I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to follow him. I'm going to try to obey him. I'm going to stumble forward and do what he tells me to do. Believing loyalty. Trusting allegiance to Jesus. What are some of the deceits that, that you wrestle with in your own heart? Sexuality can be deceptive. What do you wrestle with? If you're married, sometimes you can wrestle with this lie. If my spouse was this or that, I'd be happy and everything would be okay. The Bible says, no, that's a lie. You are there to give grace to your spouse. That's your job. Can, can you ask your spouse for help? Yes, of course, right? But don't fall in with the lie of, oh, if, if this area of life were just tweaked a little differently or were just more perfect, then all my problems would be over. No, don't, don't blame those things on your spouse. You're given to your spouse as a blessing to them. What about if you're single? You can struggle with thinking, if I, if I was just married, I'd be happy. If I was just married, I'd be happy. All my problems would be over. Not, not necessarily, right? <laughs> Do you know any married people? Um, <laughs> obedience to Jesus is difficult when you're single. Obedience to Jesus is difficult when you're married. Sexuality is, dif- is difficult when you're single and when you're married. There's no like silver bullet that solves it and makes all our problems go away except for being face-to-face with Jesus in heaven. And so while we're walking with him in this life, we're going to obey him day by day, trusting him, asking him for help, praying for his spirit to strengthen us and teach us. One more question before we move on with deception. How do we handle this with others, right? So you might be convinced I'm going to obey Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus says, but my friends don't. And that's confusing to me. Like, how do I handle my friend that's homosexual or transgender? What do I do about that? Scripture's pretty clear. 1 Corinthians 5. Again, you could go back and listen to the sermon on the topic. 1 Corinthians 5 is clear. We challenge our friends that call themselves Christians towards faithfulness to Christ. And then we tolerate our friends that don't call themselves Christians. Doesn't mean we never speak truth to them, but it's a different sort of relationship. We expect pagans to be pagan, And we encourage Christians to be faithful to Christ. If you say, I love Jesus, but you're not following him, 
it's right and good that your Christian brothers and sisters would say, hey, I, th- I thought you said you wanted to follow Jesus, but it doesn't seem like you are. You know, can I help you? And so those difficult conversations are important. We need to be prayerful. We need to be gracious. We don't want to be judgy about it, right? But we are to make judgments about truth and say, well, this is what Jesus told us to do and this is not. And have those hard conversations with our Christian friends. Totally different with our non-Christian friends. We want to have conversations with them, but we don't expect the same devotion, right? You can only see obedience to God as a good and sweet thing once you've been convinced that Jesus gave himself for you. Once that is settled, then you can say, all right, it's worth it. Let's follow him. Let's obey what he says. Let's do what he's told us to do in the scriptures. Okay, point two, sex hurts us when it's out of bounds. Sex hurts us when it's out of bounds. And again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying this to heap guilt or manipulate you towards obedience. We just want to be clear about what Scripture is clear about because our culture is constantly saying it doesn't matter. It won't hurt us. It'll actually be better for you if you just indulge. Indulgence is better and saying no is always bad. No, the Scripture says it's good to say no to what God says no to. It's for our blessing. It's for our benefit. And it can hurt us when we go out of these bounds. And so the clear boundaries of Scripture, two options sexually, are lifelong heterosexual covenantal marriage, right? We have a clear statement about that in our Grace Bible Church Constitution that's online. We have copies of it on the bookshelves in the lobby. Uh, Clear statement on sexuality. That's one of the boundaries for practicing sexuality is marriage, traditional heterosexual marriage. And then the other option is called celibacy. And that that basically means not practicing sex, right? (laughs) Not having sex. Now, I just want to be clear. I know what I just said sounds absolutely insane in our culture, okay? I know that. We're not saying to follow Jesus means the wide road of easiness. No, Jesus says it's a difficult path to walk on, but he makes it worth it. So he says, here are the two options. It's nice that we have two options, right? It could just be one, but we have two. Paul blesses them in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, you can be married. If if you really want to engage in sexual activity, marriage is your option. Here's the thing, and this is totally politically incorrect of Paul. Paul doesn't say, get married unless you're transgender, and then that would be wrong. No, he says like, or unless you're homosexual, that would be wrong. No, he just says, if you want to engage in sexual activity, get married. He doesn't mean gay marriage or transgender marriage. He means traditional, covenantal, biblical marriage, heterosexual marriage, lifelong marriage. He says, that's actually a good option for you. That blows our modern minds. We're like, oh, no, no, he doesn't understand the nuance of sexuality, and we're way more complicated than that. No, he's like, get married or don't get married. Those are the options. And so you have to pray about that and sort that out. Like, is God calling me to a life of celibacy? That's a blessing. Paul blesses that. Paul was celibate. Some people think he was maybe married and then became a widower. His wife died. We're not so sure, but we know he was single Uh, during his ministry, because he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7. And he says, this is a blessing. It's a good thing to be single. Guess who else was single? Jesus, the perfect human, was single. And so there's a blessing in singleness. So there's a lot of talk about marriage because churches want to protect marriage, and we know we're losing this battle, and marriages are falling apart. And so we talk a lot about this. And I just want to clarify, if you're single, we bless you. And we see that as as a very good option. God gives us these two options and he blesses both of them. He doesn't say one's more holy than the other. He says they're both wonderful options. 
practicing sexuality in the boundaries of marriage or being celibate. So here's where he describes the going outside the bounds. Verse 7, Now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Do you hear the desperation there? He's saying take evasive action. Don't go there. Avoid this place. Wherever it is for you, it might be a screen, it might be a place, it might be an office, it might be a gym. Avoid that place. Run from there. Joseph in the Old Testament is our example of fleeing from sexual immorality. He ran out the door. You've got to have a sense of desperate urgency because sex outside the bounds can hurt you. He says, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. He's talking here about giving your honor away, giving your stuff away. Now, our culture is a little different in our day, but there's this general idea that we cannot divide our loyalties. There's a quote I heard the other day. This was in some movie from years ago. I've never seen the movie, but I thought the quote was really strong. It's a non-Christian movie. It said, when you have sex with someone, your body is making a promise even if your mind is not making that promise. And the more you try to make those promises with multiple people, you're dividing your loyalty. You're dividing your focus, and it, it fractures us. It's disintegration. It's pulling us apart as people, and it's not good for us. And that's what he's describing here, this kind of dividing up of your honor and your stuff and your years and your labors, your strength, it's being spread all around to different houses. We see this in a very practical way in divorce and remarriage. My wife and I both grew up as children of divorce. Your loyalties are divided. Like how many Christmases can we have, right? Like that's just a really whiny, basic way to talk about it. But it's the reality. We'll go here for this day. We'll go there for that day because we can't be one family because we're a broken family. And it just multiplies and, and multiplies. That's just one small example. He says, your body can be hurt as well. Your flesh and body are consumed. Now, just very practically, um, sexually transmitted diseases are a real thing. Uh, currently in our culture, it's not okay to talk about those, but there are uh, practices of being promiscuous sexually and engaging in sexual immorality that causes more diseases in your life. And we're being told right now, oh, you can't say that. That's like not, not okay to talk about, but it is true and it is a fact. And it's not a mechanical one-for-one one thing, right? Some people get away with it and don't get the disease. Other people do. But, but there are diseases that really do spread through being involved with multiple partners in multiple places. And he goes on and says, You're going to say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. You're going to regret it. That, that's, that's the big idea. Sex hurts us when it's out of bounds. You're going to regret it. It doesn't hurt you immediately in the beginning. And in the beginning, you're like, this is great. My parents said it was bad, but it feels awesome, right? But it's going to build up and cause disintegration in your life, kind of pull you apart, break you down over time. And so we're called to take evasive action. Avoid that place. Run from that house. Where, where's the sexual immorality attracting you? Where, where are you being pulled off out of bounds? We'll run from that, right? I grabbed a picture of a horse with blinders on. Uh, when a horse uh, operates like a carriage or even a racehorse, a lot of times they'll have blinders. Why is that? Because they can be very jumpy and they can be distracted, things to the left or the right. So the blinders help them focus on what's ahead of them, focus on the path. 
And that's an idea that's used again and again in Scripture. Stay on the path, right? Follow Jesus. Listen to his voice. Don't listen to all the other voices. Like, focus on him. Pay attention to what he has to say to you. And that's what we're being called on here. You're going to see sexual immorality over there, and it's going to look sweet. It's going to look smooth, and it's going to look easy. Avoid that place. What does that look like practically? Well, one of the most common issues that our church members have struggled with that I've counseled people with is pornography. And pornography is dangerous, and you have to take it seriously. I think one of the reasons we struggle with it is it's like this halfway substitution. It feels like I can kind of engage in sexual immorality, but I'm not really hurting anybody because it's just a screen or nothing's really happening, but you are hurting someone. Literally, you are enslaving the person involved, and you are destroying yourself. We are a soul-body unity, and we tear apart ourselves when we engage in sexual immorality. So I want to challenge you. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to inconvenience yourself, okay? If you say you want to obey Jesus, but you're not willing to pay $15 a month for covenant eyes, or give away your passwords to your screens, or bring in some accountability, I think the biblical word for that would be idiot, okay? I try to be real sweet, but I just, I want to be as direct as I can, right? If you say, I care, but I don't really care, I care, but I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want my computer to be slowed down. I still need to have 15 devices with complete freedom that I can just kind of impulsively do whatever I want all the time. That's, that's not a good idea. That's destructive. And, and I want you to think in the same terms if, if pornography is not your issue, but there's this, if you're married and there's this connection with this person at the gym, you need to quit the gym. You just cancel your membership. But Dave, I, I don't want to waste that money. It's worth it. Waste the money. We need to be willing to be inconvenienced. We need to be willing to suffer in the short term for this long-term blessing of obedience to Jesus. And I, you know, sounds like I'm being harsh by saying you're an idiot. Jesus talks much more harshly than I do. (laughs) Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus has just undercut all of you Pharisees that are with me today that are like, I'm faithful. I don't struggle with this sin, right? He's like, well, mm, we all struggle. We've all been unfaithful. Just a moment of unfaithfulness in your heart is unfaithfulness. We all need Jesus. He goes on and it gets tougher. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose a body part than your whole body be thrown into hell. He goes on and says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your body parts than your whole body go into hell. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think Jesus is actually calling on us to use knives in our pursuit of sexual morality. I don't think so. I think he is being poetic. I think he is exaggerating. But the point is, you better be willing to be inconvenienced you better be willing to take evasive action to obey Jesus. If you're not, you're not following Jesus. You're just not. Is he worth it or not? Is he worth it? That's that's what he's asking you to say. Yeah, Jesus, you're worth it. I don't always understand why you tell me this and not that, but I'm going to follow you because you're worth it because I've seen that you gave yourself for me. And again, I just want to go back to we all struggle in different ways, right? We all bring things into the door. It's like, I struggle with this, but I don't struggle with this other thing. We all bring that in. We all have that baggage. 
And we all together look at Jesus and say, Jesus, some of the things you tell me to do seem easy. Some of the things you tell me to do, Jesus, seem impossible. But you are worth it, and I will follow you. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. One more thing that I think can help uh, as we struggle to keep sexuality within the boundaries is fasting. Um, There's some scientific data that I've been reading lately that talks about the kind of typical American diet. I think it's called the standard American diet. SAD is what it stands for. Um, The standard American diet, and and we eat so much sugar and simple carbohydrates in our um, world, right, that we've kind of built this addiction loop physically. Um, So just to back up a little bit, throughout the scripture, sexual immorality is connected to being driven by our belly, Those things are connected biblically. We don't fully understand all those things, but there's a connection there. And then now scientifically, the food we eat teaches us addictive behaviors, right? And so here's the cool thing. There's this thing in the Bible called fasting, right? Some of the scientific data today is showing that if you just fast for like half a day or 24 hours, you can reset that addictive loop in your brains, you can begin to practice self-control. Now, I want to be careful and not be mechanical about this, right? We're not preaching a health and wealth gospel that just says, you know, if you fast 24 hours, all your problems will be over. No, but it is a practice where you can learn to follow Jesus. It's a biblical practice. And so fasting is not something you do to impress God. It's not something you do to like whip yourself and pay for your sins. Fasting is a practice where you go without this good thing temporarily to prove to yourself that Jesus is enough. That's all I'm saying. And instead of just an anti-strategy where you say, you know what, to obey Jesus means to just go out, go without stuff, just to give up stuff. No, as you fast, Isaiah 58 says, do good things for people, right? When we fast through our uh, preparation for Easter, we often talk about if you're fasting, use that as a time to focus on prayer and Bible reading. Isaiah 58 says, also use fasting as a time to focus on doing good to others. Instead of just, I'm going to not do stuff. That's not really a very good strategy, right? Biblically, do something with that time, and that can reform your habits. Isaiah 58 says, is not this the fast that I choose, God is saying, to loosen the bonds of wickedness and undo the straps of oppression. Let the oppressed go free. Break all of their yokes of oppression. What Isaiah is saying there is, this is the kind of fast I want from my people. I want them to help hurting people. So if you're struggling with sexual immorality, instead of just saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, right? Maybe focus your attention elsewhere and say, what if I served people in love? What what if I did a service project? What if I helped other people in, in different ways? And that's the path that the Bible gives us. So last point, sex should be a great gift to marriage. Sex should be a great gift to marriage. We see this in verses 15 through 23, I'll I'll try to read this quickly because it's the most embarrassing part. It says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Okay, I'm going to pause there for just a second. Uh, A lot of commentators think this is talking about male and female anatomy. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's like an inward and an outward thing going on here. Uh, So drink water from your own cistern, your own well, inward, uh, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water out in the streets. And so it's talking both male and female, saying there's this blessing, this this theme of water and our own thirstiness, and that's like this image for our sexuality. 
And there's a good and right place for it and a wrong place for it, right? And so the big idea here is that sex should be a great gift for marriage. It's actually a gift that God has given us. Verse 17, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I've never said that word before this morning in church. Um, So let me focus on another word, intoxicated. Let's talk about that word for a second. Be intoxicated with her love. That word's really interesting. It's always used negatively in the Bible, right? We're told not to be drunk. That's why we'd say don't smoke pot because it's kind of like automatic drunkenness. Uh, With alcohol, be careful. You don't want to be drunk. You don't want to be controlled by it. The Old Testament says it. The New Testament says it. In the New Testament, there's one positive place where we're told that it's kind of good to be drunk, but it's in a particular way. And here's another. So this, this passage says one place that's good to be drunk is in your marriage when it comes to sexuality. In the New Testament, it says, don't be filled with wine, but be filled instead with the Spirit. So both the Old and the New Testament has, has this one image of a good kind of drunkenness. In the New Testament, it's the drunkenness of being overpowered, controlled, out of your mind with the Holy Spirit. What does that lead to? Well, it leads in those passages, the parallel passages in Ephesians and Colossians, with you speaking truth to one another, encouraging one another, singing hymns and songs of, about Jesus, filling each other up in Christ. It talks in Galatians 5 about how the Holy Spirit when he controls us, leads us to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, right? So that's what it means to be drunk in the, in the good kind of way in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it uses that image. The only place that's positive is right here about marriage. It says there's a sense where within marriage, you can kind of let yourself go. You can be yourself. Kind of like going back to the Garden of Eden where they were naked but not ashamed, Sexuality within marriage is this gift of giving yourself wholly to someone else, giving yourself away. It can be this beautiful gift that can bless your marriage. It's a gift from God. Again, we all come from different backgrounds. Some people feel like sexual immorality is no big deal, and we need to be brought into the boundaries of what God says. Others feel a lot of shame about sex and a lot of fear about sex and need to be encouraged. No, it is a gift that God has given in the marriage bed. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be celebrated. I like to talk about it as a spiritual discipline. It's a discipline that we should be devoted to. In most marriages, it's stereotypical that men have a stronger sex drive than women. Don't know if you've ever heard that before. Um, and so often there's compromising that takes place, right? But it's a spiritual discipline of saying, we're going we're gonna to both be devoted to this. Here's the thing. If you're outside the statistics and in your marriage, the woman's more interested than the man, what happens? You still need to compromise, right? Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 7, and he says there's a mutuality to it. He doesn't just say, all right, wives, put up with your husbands. They're really interested, and you're not. No, he says both of you devote yourself to each other. Give yourself to each other. You should have this giving attitude, this discipline of being devoted to each other. Here's a homework assignment. Go home and talk to each other, not at the restaurant, but like privately, right? (laughs) Say, hey, how could, how, could I, how could I show you love? How could I more faithfully encourage you, um, show you that I care for you, be more faithful to you? How can we practice this better? What does that look like? Have a conversation. It's a difficult conversation. And if you're single, know that being married doesn't solve all your problems. Again, Paul states this very clear in 1 Corinthians 7. 
He says, I wish all of you were like me, single, celibate. There's great blessing in celibacy. Know that God blesses both options. He blesses both routes. So he says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's the application for this point. Be devoted to one another. And again, I think it's metaphorical. You might not want to call your wife a lovely deer or a graceful doe. That might not translate uh, in our culture. I'm not sure. Ask, ask her about that. I don't know if that, that'll work. I've never used that line before myself. <laughs> a lovely deer, you are. Uh, he goes on negatively and he says, with the intoxication thing again, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Again, forbidden means that outsider outside of the community of faith. That's what that word in Hebrew means. And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. This means, again, there's no sexuality or no sexual immorality in which nobody's getting hurt, right? That doesn't really exist. God, God always knows, and it'll always hurting you. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. I grabbed a picture of the door being left open at a house. Any of you ever left the door open and someone yelled at you that you were trying to air condition the whole neighborhood? Has that ever happened? Okay. I think that's, that's a pretty common thing down here where it's 120 every day. Um, and that's the image here. It's for your home, right? In the ancient world, they would have had their own cistern. They might have had their own fountain connected to their cistern or drinking well, right? And that was part of this home. It was a private thing. And so we want to honor the privacy of sexuality within marriage. It is a sacred thing just for you and your wife. We shouldn't be cavalier about it, right? Talking about it to everybody. We talk about it to the extent that we have to talk about it because it's in Scripture. But we also want to honor that this is a private thing between you and your spouse, to be honored and to be esteemed. It's not for the whole world. It's not for the whole neighborhood. It's just for you. And God gives us these beautiful boundaries as a gift. It's a great gift to marriage. Okay, we need to wrap up here. We keep using the water imagery. Culture uses the term thirsty to talk about sexuality. The Bible uses this kind of terminology as well, that there's great satisfaction in clean, fresh water. Um, we're in a hard drought right now. We're, we're dying for rain right now in Texas and in other places all over the country. In Israel, they would have a feast every year where they would celebrate that God had given them rain and that they had some crops. So kind of similar to our Thanksgiving feast where we say, thank you, God, for giving us food. We have a big feast together. They would have feasts. They would celebrate with their uh, fruits and their crops. And then they would also kind of have these parades with water. They would have water pitchers and water buckets, and they'd celebrate and thank God for the rains. And John chapter 7 talks about Jesus invading this feast. And in the last and greatest day of this feast, where they thanked God for providing the rain and providing their fruitfulness and sustaining, sustaining them with life, Jesus stood up on the last and greatest day of this feast and says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And if you believe in Jesus, he says, as the scriptures have promised, streams of living water will flow from within you. 
Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman, you'll never thirst again. You won't continue to go thirsty. Doesn't mean you'll never have the sensation of thirst. It means Jesus will always be there to satisfy you. Jesus is your hope. Singleness is not your hope. Marriage is not your hope. The perfect sexual partner or fantasy is not your hope. Jesus is your hope. Come to Jesus and he will satisfy you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you've given yourself to us in Jesus. Teach us what it means to follow you. Again, Lord, we confess we all stumble in with with different injuries and, and traumas and hurts and pains and fears and embarrassments. But God, you are so gracious to us. You love us. You invite us to come to yourself and find relief for our suffering and our sin. We thank you and we pray that you'd help us to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.